0: that's one of the big issues I think that we've had with restaurants over the past few years you've had too many people wanting to launch a chain rather than launch a site and launch a restaurant with real feeling about it you know be engaged where you are be engaged with your community grow it organically then people will connect with you rather than because who's in trouble right now it's the chains but it's actually the community restaurants are the ones that are going to survive because people are in their communities and that's the essence of what this is and London for us is our community
1: That's Dominic Cool's Lartigue a street food pioneer here in London and co-founder of a new digital food festival that launches today, featuring delivered meals, restaurant recipe kits, virtual gigs, and more. But there's a twist. Dom and his co-founder BJ want to keep their food delivery platform humming along far after the festival ends. We'll hear later on what they have in store. Also on the show today, we'll hear about the ways the travel industry might change and how some small businesses in the U.S., are coping with the yo-yo effect of closing, opening, and now closing again. All that and more coming up today on The Courier Weekly. I'm Daniel Giacopelli, and this is the new weekly podcast from Courier. For weeks now on the show, in our email newsletters and in the magazine, we've been catching up with tons and tons of small businesses. Cafes in Copenhagen, plant shops in Athens, and restaurants in Shanghai to find out how they're re-emerging from lockdown safely, but also profitably. One really big theme has emerged. It's incredibly tough to run a business right now when you have no idea what the next week, let alone the next month, will bring. It's really hard to make financial projections, order stock or fresh ingredients, or keep a team on payroll when you don't even know if you'll be allowed to stay open. A few weeks ago, we posed that question to Alfonso Wright from Brooklyn Tea, a small tea shop in Bed-Stuy.
2: What COVID taught us, and you know, is we have to be adaptable. We have to pivot. We have to evolve. So whatever comes next, we're just gonna take it as it is and do whatever we can to overcome it. Uh, and that's really all we can do. We just kind of plan in the moment and think of a, you know, a short-term, long-term strategy. How we get through this month, <laughs> and then okay, something weird happened. All right, how we get through that next month? It seems, especially until the pandemic's over or until you know, there's a vaccine, it seems almost foolish because we don't know when the next wave is going to happen to make long-term plans right now, unless it's like years out. And because we're a startup new business, years out also is you know, a little crazy. We have no historical data to go by. So I think we're focusing our energy on how can we pivot, how can we evolve, how can we adapt to what's coming you know, this week, next week, so we can just kind of stay alive.
1: And Alfonso was right. And as if on cue, the situation in the U.S. has taken a turn for the worse. There are nearly 50,000 new coronavirus cases on Wednesday alone, and businesses are preparing for the worst, with those in at least a dozen states having to shut down yet again after already reopening. So again, how do you deal with that as a business owner? We're heading to Austin now to catch up with journalist Samantha Shankman, who wrote a piece for us in today's newsletter about the situation in Texas. Here's what she had to say.
3: So we're in a frustrating moment right now in Texas because there were some signs of positivity. I think that business owners were starting to feel hopeful. There were expectations that people could start to go out again. And just I think there was a general feeling that people were becoming more comfortable with the idea of maybe picking up their coffee at the cafe that they like or even treating themselves to a special dinner or a night out with friends. And a lot of businesses in Texas did a really good job of following the rules and following all the regulations. What happened was in May, the economy started to slowly reopen and bars and restaurants were able to have customers inside at 50 to 75 percent occupancy. But what happened last Friday on June 28th was that Texas Governor Greg Abbott actually issued an executive order that bars and any space that receives more than 51 percent of their receipts from the sale of alcohol had to close by noon. So some bars were in a position in which they had to close in three hours. And this was after spending a lot of money, time, training, just reopening less than a month before. Most bars opened on May 22nd, which means that they had spent a lot of investment in opening again, just to be told one month later that they had three hours to shut their doors. Restaurants are in a little bit of a different situation because they are actually able to stay open at 50%. But what you have to realize is that in a lot of areas, especially in downtown Austin, and Rainy Street. A lot of these restaurants are also bars or cafes or lounges. So some of them are getting more than 51% of their revenue from alcohol. So even though they are a restaurant, they were still required to close within those three hours.
1: And that was essentially one of the restaurants you caught up with in our newsletter today, right? A restaurant called Devil May
3: Care. Yeah. Devil May Care is actually in a really interesting position because they had just opened in Austin in December and they had received a ton of positive reviews. The public was loving what they offered. It was in a popular location downtown and they had to close reopen close again. And now they are able to reopen, but they don't want to because it's not even the same environment that they want to give people. So here they are with a brand new concept, a brand new idea that people only could experience for one month before they started this game of open, close, open, close.
1: You also caught up with a a cafe that decided to never Reopen, despite being allowed to by the official guidelines. So they kind of just like decided to stick it out and stay closed Albeit with a bit of a takeaway service
3: Exactly. Greater Goods Coffee Company is a really important part of the Austin culture, actually, because they are built by people from Austin. They have a local brand which gives money back to the Austin community. They have classes. They felt it was irresponsible to open at the time when a lot of other cafes or restaurants were. Now, of course, a coffee shop is in a different situation because they're able to give a lot of the same experience and product through takeaway or through Side. But I think that was what was really interesting in talking to Greater Goods. They talked about how important the community was in being able to do what they're doing. The community really came around them and said, we're going to order online. We're going to keep coming in. We're going to order your coffee when we're making coffee at home. And because of that, the co-founders feel like they'll be able to stay open in this new reality, at least through 2021. The problem is a lot of these other businesses aren't able to survive through 2021 if they're operating at this lower level. And I think a bigger concern in Austin in particular is the music venues and the musicians, because Austin is a music city. I mean, a lot of people right now are leaving San Francisco, they're leaving New York, and they're saying, where should we go? And people want to go to Austin because it has this local music scene, it has local bars. But the problem is, is with these shutdowns, especially when you're opening and closing again, A lot of these businesses may go out of business. And I think the initial attraction of Austin, which is small businesses, it is these local bars and music venues, may not be here in the future. So we're talking about a situation in which the actual fabric of the city is going to change. Now, this change was already happening, but this is going to accelerate that change.
1: Sam Shankman there in Austin, Texas. Next up, to Chicago to talk travel with Melissa Dalrymple. She's a partner at McKinsey, where she helps lead the design team, and she thinks about better ways to innovate in industries like travel and hospitality. Melissa and her team have just released a new report called Make It Better, Not Just Safer, The Opportunity to Reinvent Travel. It looks at how travel and hospitality companies might freshen things up post-COVID. I thought we'd catch up with Melissa to find out what sort of recommendations they came up with.
4: I spend a lot of my time thinking about customer experience in travel and hospitality. And, you know, like many of us, travel and hospitality is very personal as well as, you know, something that I do professionally. And it's been hit really hard, right? Obviously, a sector that's had major trauma because of what's happening with COVID. And it's not clear how it comes out of it. And, you know, we were hearing a lot of, accurate sort of doom and gloom predictions about travel and how strong the dip was and how hard it was for folks. And I was having a lot of conversations with clients that felt like they always ended on a very bad note. And I thought, well, there's got to be some optimism to this, right? There's got to be an opportunity. You know, there's all those sayings about, you know, never waste a crisis. And so we started thinking about, is there a different way to think about what's going on where you could actually say, yes, of course, you're going to have to come back safer. And of course, things are going to change. But frankly, there's some opportunities to change for the better that might actually get you out the other side in a stronger position. And so that was kind of the derivation of the article. And then we started trying to figure out, you know, is that even possible? And how do we think about that most thoughtfully?
1: You guys came up with a couple points of how to, in fact, make travel better. The first of which was giving travelers more control. What do you mean by that?
4: Yeah, that's another one of those things that was sort of accelerating. So when you do design thinking, which is what I do, you spend a lot of time trying to understand what customers care about before you go and solve the problem. Not just looking at the business, not just looking at how you deliver it, but actually like, what do they want? What are their needs in the first place? And oftentimes those needs are not just about travel, their, the general expectations they have from using other tools. And so, you know, you can think about what Amazon does, or you can think about what many of the other sort of digital forward companies do. And like them or not, they are setting the tone for the way that people want to have access to things on demand, relatively quickly, to some extent on their terms. And for travel, you know, there was lots of opacity, right? I want to buy a ticket. Well, what's the refund like? And buried in the small print, you know, a couple pages down, there was a refund policy. Or, you know, I want to book a flight. Can I pick my seat? You know, those types of questions some folks had solved, some folks hadn't. And the kind of control that's actually allowing people to say, I'm willing to come back to travel is about things like I know that you will treat me right if something happens with COVID and I can't take this flight I want to know that I get a refund or I want to be able to say to you I'm willing to stay in your hotel but please let me not have cleaning I actually don't want people in my room I'd feel safer without it or frankly the reverse please come and clean my room every day because I want to make sure it's sanitized so the challenging thing when you listen to customers is we're not a single block right and so it's about what are the types of choice and control that you want to be able to give people. So they have an experience that builds up their confidence to want to come back.
1: Was this report a prescriptive thing? I mean, like, you know, travel companies should do this or is there evidence that, you know, they're already thinking of this kind of stuff? Is it wishful thinking on, on your part?
4: <laughs> I suppose it's a bit cautionary, but it's also stuff that we're seeing. You know, we had a couple points at the end of this report that said, look, you can try to out-clean each other and you can try to sort of compete on that. But at the end of the day, those are table stakes, right? And so if you start to think about how do you want to come out the other side of this, there's a real chance to differentiate yourselves. And so we're seeing some companies do that. Within travel, there have been some great examples of companies who have been very human, and so instead of a CEO saying, here's what the deal is and here's how much it's going to cost you and et cetera, they've said, this is a huge challenge we've never faced before. And we are really trying to get through it. Let us tell you what we're doing and let us tell you why. And then the next step is, you know what? A new regulation or a new you know, strategy has happened. We're going to change. But because I've been so human about it customers have actually said to us, we are much more willing to be patient with brands if they're being honest with us and being transparent with us. And I think that's sort of a nice change, at least in big companies, from the way they behave. And frankly, if you're talking to small and medium companies, they've often been quite good at this, right? To just say, we are a person behind this, or we are a small group of people, and we're passionate about this. So they have maybe a a leg up on the big companies in terms of being able to just say, this is how we're thinking about it. Help us get through this together.
1: Is that part of the Authenticity element that you mentioned? I mean, one of the ways to make travel better was, you know, offering greater authenticity and personalization.
4: Yep, absolutely right. I mean, there's ways to do personalization now with digital that is, you know, sort of way beyond what we've ever been able to do before, which is pretty nifty in and of itself. But when you start to think about things like we were just talking about, you know, either can I or can I not pick my housekeeping? Could I ask for contactless food delivery in a hotel? Can I pick my seat ahead of time on an app from an airplane? Those are things we couldn't have done before that are simple and at our fingertips now. But I also think there's the next level version of that, which is be human, right? Be authentic in terms of saying, you know what, we're struggling. And it's not just about the notion that we're going to tell you a few things that are placebos and then we're going to act the same it's actually sort of acting that way throughout the process and the other piece i'd end that with is it's about thinking end to end right the authenticity example we brought up was a boutique hotel the rise of the boutique hotel in our minds was about every piece of detail was paid attention to, right? Nothing struck the wrong chord, and it's often why big companies can't copy it because they don't know how to think end to end and sort of deliver it beautifully. And if you take a lesson from what they do end to end, customers care about a lot of different things right now because of the safety issue. And if you actually have thought out things like refunds or the experience they're having when they're thinking about traveling, as much as you have in how they pay for travel, you create a much more authentic experience that feels consistent, doesn't have many gaps in between.
1: Yeah, totally. You also talk about like different types of interventions that companies can do. You know, you say a focus on health and hygiene only scratches the surface because so much of what we just talk about in the media and online is the cleaning, the deep cleaning, the social distancing, but actually it goes so far beyond that.
4: Absolutely. You know, if you think about folks returning to travel, it's not just about safety. It's also about sort of the psychological safety, right? The confidence to return. Just because you tell me that you're safe doesn't mean I'm going to believe you. But, you know, the first pass is logically around the base level of safety, right? And so we think about it like, I don't know, think about it like a pyramid a little bit. Like, of course, safety is at the bottom. If you're not going to create the base level of things like PPE and cleaning things and all of that stuff, say, you know, social distancing, et cetera then you risk the likelihood that someone's going to say I'm out period. But if you take it one step up the pyramid, you got to communicate those things effectively, like we just talked about, right? It's about being human, it's about saying it's potentially going to change and here's why and here's what we're doing. But the third tier, where we're actually seeing some exciting stuff is where companies are saying we're not just going to, you know, clean and tell you about it. We're actually going to do things differently that actually make the experience better. And that's the piece that I think is Where we're seeing some of the companies taking this like, look, I don't want to just have to spend money on right now. I want to create something that can sustain over time because we're going to come out of this. And what the brand stands for now, you know, you want it to be sustainable over time rather than taking a left turn later, right?
1: I was talking a couple weeks ago with a venture capitalist who works in the transportation sector. And he said something that might come out of this whole crisis is A focus on cleaning things like e-scooters, for instance, and there might be an entire new type of startup that might appear that just does that one thing really well. Do you think you're going to see a proliferation of small little upstarts who focus on one niche in the travel world to kind of, you know, attend to one of these problems that need solving?
4: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think those things tend to come up when there's a big problem to solve that nobody has an answer to. (laughs) And it's oftentimes much better to have a partner who can do that and do it quickly than for some large company to try to figure out how to spin towards it. But I also think there's a challenge, right? We don't know what's gonna stick out of all of these things. And so, you know, there may not be scooters at the end of it, (laughs) let alone the folks who clean the scooters. And so I think there's a little bit of a balance, right? We are optimistic, but we are also not naive enough to think that when you're down, 90% in bookings that you have a lot of money to spend. And so what we tried to focus on was there are places that are win-win so that for a customer, it's a better experience, but also for a company. So as an example, we heard from travelers who were thinking about getting back to air travel that their biggest concern was the boarding process and the inflate process. The boarding process is slow because of getting to your seats, but also because of people putting bags up above the seats. Companies for a very long time have wanted to make that process easier because it's faster for them as well and they like to get bags out of the planes. So now you're suddenly at a moment where a customer might say, look, if I'm scared of boarding, I might actually want my bag in the hold instead of in the actual plane because I'd like to board quickly, get there quickly. And then like, of course I will sanitize my bags, but that's less of my concern. And so you could imagine examples like that where it's good for you and it's good for the consumer. If you wanted to make that even more of a triple situation, you could imagine what we were talking about with sustainability. As a company, I don't love to have to service everybody's room all the time. From a sustainability standpoint, the less laundry you do, the better for the world. From a customer standpoint, I don't want you in my room because I'd like to like, you know, maintain my own bubble once I'm here. And so you could think about those things as like, let's make sure those happen sooner rather than later because it's it's good for all of us, right? And it helps the company start to recover as well.
1: Have you stumbled upon any other opportunities that others might not have spotted yet in the travel sector that, you know, a smart entrepreneur might be able to to plug into? I mean, as you say, it's difficult to, you know, to predict even what will be around five months from now, let alone five weeks from now.
4: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I'm a big believer in, you know, you start to observe what's happening and then you start to create solutions for needs that aren't being met. And so I like your point of, you know, what's the quick and dirty way to sort of make sure that scooters still stay viable? I could imagine situations where airlines serve less food on the planes. And so you could have a business creating, you know, vending right at the gate. And so, you know, you have the opportunity to have something that's been sealed and, and sort of officially said to be clean, right? So that you feel really confident doing it and you don't have to have something that was created on board and might be a bit dirty. So I think there's a few, you know, elements like that where they sort of sit in the middle of, you know, a longer end to end process that the company might not be solving for, but a point solution might work for.
1: You write in the report, you know, no crystal ball can tell us what the future of travel will be. That being said, I mean, when do you think most people will feel comfortable hopping on a plane again? You know, a Ryanair flight to Barcelona for the weekend to have some fun.
4: God, it's a really interesting question, and it's been a moving target, frankly. I'm working in the U.S., so I spent a lot of time watching what was happening in China, and then in Europe, and then you know, what would it predict for us? And it took a long time to get here, and we are now, of course, quite a hot spot, and are banned from visiting you guys. So I don't think we know. In the U.S., I can tell you that we, when we thought about people returning to travel, we had sort of a tiered system of people who were ready to do it early because. I don't care what you tell me, it's my own personal choice, my safety, and made a bunch of people who said, not for a long time, see you in 2021, right? Or I might do a road trip to a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Now we're actually seeing some of those early returners push back because they're saying, the hot spot that I thought was New York is now me. And oh, this is a serious issue. And so we're actually seeing those numbers shift frequently. But we're certainly seeing green shoots, lots of exciting stuff happening in Europe. And certainly, as long as the balance between people's willingness to risk and what's happening with the virus enables travel, I think you're you know seeing that progression. What concerns us is when the bounces happen, you know the impact on that in terms of people's willingness to come back.
1: Melissa Dalrymple there from McKinsey's Chicago office. And finally, today through Sunday, there's a new digital festival called the Great Feast of London. It's the brainchild of founders Dominic Cools lartigue who previously launched the street food market Street Feast, and B.J. Mulenga, whose consultancy super talent works on diversity campaigns and programs for corporates and SMEs. The two are also behind the Food Poverty Initiative, A Plate for London. The original plan for the Great Feast was a physical festival, but they quickly pivoted to a digital one during lockdown. It'll include a mixture of delivered food from some of the absolute top chefs in London, plus virtual entertainment and some great music. They also plan to operate the festival's food delivery platform year-round following the festival. So are they literally going up against the likes of Uber Eats, or are they just doing things their way? I caught up with them a bit earlier to find out. Here's Dom.
0: I've always felt that London, whilst we have some really great food markets, obviously Street Feast being one, in terms of a really big defining food festival that represents the city, I didn't feel as though we had one. There are a couple of big food festivals that reference London in their title but I think some of them are a little bit stale and some of them don't really represent the London that I know, have the diversity and the energy and the representation which is so important particularly right now and as a person of colour that means a lot to me. So that's kind of sat there on the idea shelf, waiting for the right opportunity, waiting for the right park to do it. And then so when lockdown came in and BJ and I were looking at these virtual food festivals and I thought... Virtual food, first of all, ultimately, it still means I need to do the cooking. And I actually, and in London, we're so spoiled for choice. I actually, we want to eat the food. So at the time, I had what I thought was a revolutionary idea about onboarding michelin star chefs and great restaurants onto a well-known delivery platform. So we reached out, we spoke to a potential partner, talks went very well. So then we spoke to all these restaurants around London and these chefs. And they came back to us and said, Don, but we can't work with those partners. Some of them did, you know. Though some of the bigger brands are quite happy too, but some just said we can't do that because paying 30, 35% for commission is too much for an independent restaurant to be able to afford, to survive, particularly right now. So BJ and I were faced with a very clear decision. It's one of those fork in the road moments for a business where we thought we were going one way. We had to work out which side of this argument are we on. Ultimately and always, we went with the independent restaurants. We went with those people that we know and people who actually need support because If we weren't doing it, then there isn't an opportunity. There isn't that kind of platform to support them. So we decided to build out our own fleet, which has been the most amazing, up-and-down, crazy journey over the last couple of months. But that's the route we've taken. You
1: guys are launching this digital festival then today. You've brought all of these really cool chefs. What could people expect? Because, you know, we're now in the era of virtual festivals and a lot of people are a bit skeptical about that. You know, does it involve just another Zoom call that, you know, people are just so sick of Zoom.
0: What will this entail? Well, the nice thing about this, what this will entail is, as everybody's seen, we've seen loads of cook-alongs on Instagram. Everybody's seen it and so on. It's like, well, actually, no. You can eat one of three different ways. So there's the normal food that's ready to eat when it arrives at your door, which we're pre-ordering. We're not doing the on-demand delivery because that is a bit messy, and there's a lot to take on. Right now, you can order some food for 24 hours. You can order food for Saturday from a number of different restaurants around London. And on a Saturday, you can, you, know, you can order food for Sunday right the way through. So that's kind of the standard thing, the hot food. But actually, the exciting bits, the recipe kits, and even more so the supper club. So, for example, this Saturday, Nuno Mendes is cooking a 100-person supper club. It's the food of Portugal and Goa because um, the Portuguese were obviously in Goa, and the food of Goa has... Those wonderful portuguese routes but also of all the different places that they stopped off on the way so there's lovely north african influences there as well and as a portuguese man himself nuno's often been fascinated by that so he's created a wonderful three-course menu for us on saturday and then Oli debu from hyde is doing one for Sunday's Supper Club. And both of those meals, whilst prepared in their kitchens, they're finished off by the customer at home. And then Ollie and Nuno have recorded videos for the customers. So if you buy, for example, Ollie's Supper Club, you get a private link where Ollie will talk to you about how you finish it off at home. So for his meal, there's this wonderful broth, which you heat up at home and you pour the broth over the salmon, which cooks the salmon. And then you've got all the wonderful little pots where his, you know, with the presentation, the video shows you exactly how it should be laid out, how he would plate it in his restaurant. So you get to plate it in the same way. So there's a nice bit of interaction. It's gonna be hot because, you know, you're cooking it at home as well, which is obviously sometimes an issue with food delivery. But you also you've got that kind of Michelin standard quality of food and produce, which has come from Ollie, which is, which is really nice. So that's where the distinction is for how we're doing it.
1: I mean, how will you guys, sustain the delivery aspect into the future? I mean, are you trying to create a proper business that could like go up against it with the likes of, you know, Deliveroo and Uber Eats one day, get some VC money, you know, really grow this thing? Or is it more a really niche thing where you're curating really cool stuff from cool people, but you don't have a real need to grow it huge, you know,
0: hockey stick growth? It's not a matter of growing up against people. I think we've identified there's a need right now, whether it's in lockdown or not having not just Michelin Standard but also just some of the really great chefs the wonderful neighbourhood restaurants from places like Levan in Peckham and the guys at cricket and so on having that food brought to you and particularly not just for Londoners we've seen a lot of sales from people in the home counties people who maybe normally work in London and come out to play in London but can't actually get into the city right now so actually being able to buy that food they wouldn't, may not normally be able to get on their normal delivery platforms because it's too far so getting that as a recipe kit or getting that as a special experience is really great so we see there's definitely in business in that we're not thinking about vc money and all the rest of it we own this we've put our own money into this we've done this ourselves we've bootstrapped it ourselves so not having the pressure of anybody else is great the only thing we have to answer to is ourselves and we'll talk to our customers and we'll build this carefully with our partners and yeah and see where it goes i think that some of the best things we've done street feast was the same way you, you can see like i knew at the beginning of street feast that there would be a potential for this There were no night markets in london I started one and I just grew it and I grew it and then we had two we had 600 people at the first one when I sold it three years later we had 20,000 people a week attending and it is what it is today and just that, that same careful guidance and feeling it organically and talking to our customers is the way to go rather than just you know that's one of the big issues I think that we've had with restaurants over the past few years you've had too many people wanting to launch a chain rather than launch a site and launch a restaurant with real feeling about it be engaged where you are be engaged with your community grow it organically then people will connect with rather than because who's in trouble right now it's the chains but it's actually the community restaurants are the ones that are going to survive because people are in their communities. And that's the essence of what this is. And London for us is our community. And
5: a big thing for us is greatfeast.com is something that
0: because we've invested so much behind it
5: personally, we're going to be looking to bring different experiences every week. Um, So there's going to be options for people to purchase next week, the week after. It definitely is a business. People will be able to see this as a place that we hopefully want to see as a launch pad for those who haven't even thought about doing recipe kits, for example. It's It's an opportunity for us to own that space as it as lockdown has presented new market opportunities as dom mentioned the experience of a hybrid between a restaurant and something that you finish off at home is something that we only predict internally is going to be on the rise
1: dom you mentioned before you know when you were looking at the different food festivals in london not many really were promoting the diversity of voices and backgrounds and experience that you know you would expect in such a crazily multicultural city like London. In the Courier Weekly email, our email newsletter this week, we have a piece about Black Book, um, a new kind of like food platform for black voices in the food world. One of the things we talked about is just the complete lack of coverage in the media of black owned restaurants in London. And one of the insane stats we found from this Eater article was that only two black owned restaurants have received a national newspaper review in the past five years in this country it's totally insane i mean i don't know what are your thoughts about that
0: yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm also just on that point about Black Book. It's, it's amazing to see that come about. I'm, I'm going to be talking on one of their podcasts in August about investment into black restaurants, which is a hugely important conversation, as all of the conversations that they have sketched out over the next few weeks are. It is crazy. I mean, I came to food only 10 years ago. I'd, I'd been in the music industry for 15 years, and it's been such an amazing journey. It's a wonderful community of people. Like in any industry, you'll get those who are just in it for the money. And I think some of them will move on, some of them will stick at it. And I think a lot of them are. Running rubbing their hands right now, which quite sickens me, unfortunately, but that's just the game, just to kind of like vultures picking the bones off the sweat of a lot of other people's work. That's just what goes on. But it surprised me, considering how important I know that food is in the black community. There isn't more spoken about and more coverage of the great food. And when we talk about black, there's just so much. It's not, you know, black isn't just one thing. There are so many different cuisines in and across Africa itself and across parts of Asia and the US and the Caribbean where I'm from, you know, where my family's from. So there's so much richness, but it's a matter of getting that coverage. But if this is the point that we can do something about it and put that right, great if this is the point where we can actually start celebrating and talking about different chefs who haven't had the opportunity then great and why haven't those chefs come through well is that because of the structure that's been in in the, the hospitality industry for so long where they've been kept down which is why if you walk into any restaurant the black faces you might see there may only be kitchen porters and you're not going to be seeing too many rise through you know those who have been able to make that difference i was talking to james cochran about this the other day he was telling me about some of the racism that he faced early on in his career he swallowed it, knuckled down and got on with it. But it's like, it's not fair that he should have had to, had to face it. But hopefully now a younger chef who's looking up and can see that James has made it, James can obviously be an inspiration for them to come through.
1: It seems like we're at a real like inflection point for both food businesses and black-owned businesses Separately, It could be an even bigger inflection point for black-owned food businesses because people are buying food in different ways right now, right? They're buying locally. They're changing the ways they consume. And for a lot of people, they're also trying to buy from black-owned brands just full stop. So it seems like there might be a lot of opportunities to just mix things up here and, like— and see black owned food businesses succeed?
0: 100%. And you know, look, when it comes to food, people are curious. I, you know, there's one bit that I've I've always take with me was from the third ever Street Feast we did. We had a street food crew called Vin who are from the Seychelles. That was their debut night with us and they had the biggest queue. And you know, it just told me that people want to know they weren't just at the burger stands or at the rib joint or the pizza joint. It's like, what's this food? That smells amazing. That's tasty. A black owned family business are running that crew. Why aren't they on our high streets? And we have such an opportunity right now because there's going to be so many. I mean, the high street was in trouble before all of this. There are going to be so many opportunities right now, retail places that won't be able to open up. We've got an opportunity right now with investment to get some of those black-owned businesses onto the high street and into these communities so they've got an opportunity to thrive as well right now.
1: What will you guys be doing over the next three days, personally?
0: Eating. (laughs) I'm old school, yeah. So Saturday night, the fact that we've got Basement Jacks, Groove Armada, and Goldie playing, it's like there's you know my 20 year old self is like is absolutely over the moon about that. So yeah, there's there's stuff to be done for sure. Beech, what are you excited about this weekend? I'm most definitely excited
5: about the other DJs that we've got, which hit my 24 year old self. I turned 25 on Monday, so I'll be celebrating my my birthday all weekend with this festival. Yeah, we've got a few young DJs who are coming up who are going to play some good mixes for us, and I'm excited for that. And also, just on the other note around the opportunity for Black businesses at the moment, we just had Black Pound Day last Saturday, which was really, really powerful. A lot of the community got behind that. During lockdown, there's been a real big rise of... Black caterers who've just gone digital and are now doing home delivery once a week. People who are making um, cook-alongs and charging people to subscribe. I think the playing field of everyone being at home has meant that new providers are not entering the market. And I think stuff like Black Pound Day and also just a, a massive amount of resources going behind. I think Korea, for example, have announced that they're, they're doing some stuff around supporting black entrepreneurs. There's a lot of funds available now and I think economic power is a big thing to help social change. You're only as good as people you know and you're only as good as, you know, the access to capital that you have to grow. So I think there's a level playing field and, and they want in the next quarter and hopefully for the rest of the year to invest in interesting concepts by black-owned businesses, I think we'll start seeing some change and hopefully me and Dom both being of black ethnicity and coming from Caribbean and Africa, we'll be able to hopefully be a launch pad for a mixture, of more diverse type set of businesses. So yeah, I'm excited to eat. My father's a chef, so I'm looking forward to him being a critique of the different food that I'm gonna get sent to the home. So yeah, it's gonna be fun, it's gonna be good.
1: And that's it this week. As always, if you've got any questions, comments, or feedback about anything at all, you can reach me at daniel at couriermedia.co. We'll see you soon.